You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For this week's episode, we're looking at the work of Jim Davis, best known for creating Garfield. And it was my privilege and pleasure to have Lindsay Little as my guest. She is an artist and illustrator who's been finding success with her own webcomics, linked in the show notes. And it was really nice to get her insights into character development as she went through a little bit of her thought process and helped me to understand a little bit more about the subtle aspects of the design that made Garfield so successful. I feel like who art ed. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have Lindsay Little, the creator of the webcomic series, Oni Girl. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I am so excited to be talking to you because I have been wanting to tackle comics and illustration and that world and that aspect of the arts, and I am always happy to talk to somebody who really understands that space, not only as a consumer of the culture, but a creator as well. Mm. So thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, you suggested this topic. I always love it when guests bring an artist to me. Today, we're going to be talking about the life and the work of Jim Davis. Now, for guests who don't recognize that name off the bat, um, I'm sure most people listening will recognize his famous cartoon character, Garfield. Now, just before we get into his work and his creation, I always like to start off with the background. He was uh, Jim Davis was born July 28th, 1945 in Marion, Indiana, and he grew up on a cow farm. It says he actually wanted to grow up to be a farmer, like his, his father was a farmer. Um, I think he was part of the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, but he had asthma and found himself like just indoors a lot because if you have asthma, sometimes it can be irritated by things out in nature. But when we're talking about like 1945, there wasn't a TV in every room. There wasn't necessarily even a TV in every household, but he did find ways to pass his time. His mom gave him a paper and a pencil to keep himself occupied. I'm not sure how well that would go over with my (laughs) kids in my household, Um, but it worked for him. And he developed his love of drawing there. 
And so he continued to draw. And in high school, he joined the school newspaper staff, eventually became the art editor. Uh, No huge shock there. And Mm. this is where he actually published his first cartoon, which was later reused the same characters to make illustrations for the yearbook. Um, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't remember illustrations in my yearbooks in high school. I know mine didn't. Yeah. That sounds like, that sounds like yearbooks used to be way cooler than they are. I mean, I say that, but I, uh, my senior year of high school, I did illustrate the interior covers of my, uh, yearbook. But other than that, that was sort of, uh, not the norm. Yeah, I guess. I guess I just don't remember. I didn't do much in in high school, so <laughs> maybe maybe it was user error. But it, it just struck me as the kind of thing that, like, as a teacher today, it seems like mm-hmm. a really cool thing to give to recognize a student's talents and give them that yeah. outlet to create something um, that would be. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, publishing it on on that scale for their local community. And I know a, a lot of times, like you said, you did the interior covers and at my school students designed the cover of the yearbook, but I think it's cool to have like characters spaced throughout. Yeah. Like a reoccurring, um, sort of thing that is, uh, created for the school. Yeah. It yeah. just, it, it seems like it's just, you know, it's more than just the surface level because, I mean, the cover literally is the surface level and I, right. I like that they put it in the body of it. Anyways, getting back to, you know, he didn't end his study in in high school. He studied art and business at Ball State University then. And in 2006, he returned to Ball State as a member of the faculty. And he gives back to the next generation of comic artists, sharing his experience and his insights into the business. Because one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, the art world, it's a job. It, mm. It's a fun job. It's a cool job and rewarding when it works out well for you. But it is a job and it is a business that that people have to take seriously if they want to be successful. And I, I always love when I read these stories of artists who do make it and give back to the next generation of artists. Mm. And in, in that vein of business, he actually started his career in advertisement. Uh, 1969, he started assisting with the Tumbleweeds comic. Are you familiar with Tumbleweeds? I had never read Tumbleweeds, no. Yeah, I I was shocked that I wasn't familiar with it until re- researching this because it was a long-running comic strip. It went for 42 wow. years. And it was satirizing, satirizing the American West. Huh. Which, like, in hindsight, like, 1969, that that feels like it makes perfect sense to me. Um, like to have something in pop culture that's talking about the American West because mm-hmm. of the fact that like, like, I just think that's a time when like Westerns were super popular, like John Wayne and all of that. Yeah. Like my parents' generation seemed to love Westerns. I, I don't remember the last time I saw a Western um, that like, you know, my dad wasn't showing me for, <laughs> for some reason. To it's, try. it's definitely like. Uh, it's definitely a generational thing. Like it was really big back then, but uh, sort of rare these days. Um, it, you said that Jim Davis assisted on tumbleweeds. Did uh, yeah. uh, did your research um, show like what he did exactly? Was it? I'm curious to know what kind of assistant work uh, there would be uh, for well, comics back then. Well, so I 
I got the sense that what he was doing, and I could be wrong because I did not write this down and I have a memory of a goldfish, but <laughs> my 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 take on it was like, you know how in um for for lack of a better term, like that that industrial art setting, you have the head designer who's mm-hmm. coming up with the big ideas and the concept work, and then you have other artist assistants who are like executing the actual drawings a lot of times, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Absolutely. I got the sense that Davis was kind of in that vein where he was like doing some of the execution work of some of the drawings and, and, um, Mm. Tom, Tom K. Ryan, the, the, the guy behind tumbleweeds Mm -hmm. was like doing the, the bigger picture stuff, the big designs, the big concepts, the writing and, and probably, you know, like a lot of traditional artist studios, maybe he was doing like putting his his personal touches on some elements of it, but leaving right. the boring stuff to Davis yeah, and yeah. others. At least that's that's my take on it and my assumption just based on like studio practices in general. You know? It's just uh, interesting to me because uh, comics definitely take a lot of work, um, but generally for comic strips, I, um, like tumbleweeds, I had, it had never occurred to me that, um, that could take, uh, multiple people besides the artist and the writer. So I was just really curious, uh, about what Jim Davis, uh, would have done for that. But, uh, I'm absolutely sure you're right that it was more of the sort of grunt work like maybe he uh maybe the artist the uh, original artist sketched it and then Jim Davis went in with the inks and cleaned it uh cleaned it up uh that's not unusual for uh more um of a typical comic format like you would get in a comic book yeah and that's my my thought and also just like when you think about the the comic book or the comic strips, I should say, because it's not like a full graphic novel or anything like that. But like comic strips on the one hand seem like, well, there's not so much to it. But at the same time, like there's this pace of output mm-hmm. and the constant mm-hmm. deadlines yeah. that I think the really successful ones always need a, yeah. a good team behind them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so Davis spent like nine years as the assistant for Tumbleweeds. Wow. And yeah. Wow. And in that time, he was able to sort of sort of develop his own ideas. Like, I mm. kind of get the sense it was almost like an internship type thing. You know, he's mm-hmm. paying his dues. He's he's doing the grunt work. But then he also gets that flexibility to right. pursue his passion project. And he probably learned a ton from it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and his first comic on his own was called Norm Nat or Gnorm Nat. it was like norm with a g right yeah but that's a play on the way that nat is spelled so i think you're right it's probably norm nat yeah i mean it is that play on words that like i i get it but as someone who has to read it out loud it's just like i cringe every time i hear it because i struggle with pronunciation right well let's be glad that he ended up scrapping that one (laughs) Yeah, and it wasn't actually because of um, my struggles to pronounce it. It only ran from like 1973 to 1975 because basically the feedback was the illustrations are good, the jokes are great, but bugs are not relatable characters (laughs) to an audience, you know? Um, Right. 
And, and so like he did take, he did take that in. He took that, that feedback that I think a lot of people have a hard time with, like, especially, you know, you dedicate that time and effort, you get this, this thing out there. Mm-hmm. It's hard to hear that people don't are put off by the central premise <laughs> of your work, mm-hmm. but you know, he licked his wounds and he came back and yeah. And that's probably uh, something that business school helped him with since you said that he uh, studied that as well. Yeah. And, and he took his time to study a bit looking at what were successful comics, um, Snoopy and peanuts being of course, Mm. one of the most successful comic strips out there. And he looked at that and thought, okay, well, the market's kind of saturated with dogs. Mm-hmm. So what's what's the next most lovable pet? And for a lot of people who are not me, it's a cat. <laughs> you know, um, I, my cat's always pounced on me just randomly. <laughs> but yeah, he he decided a cat would be a good thing because, like I said, dogs were out there. And a fun fact that I found when I was doing this research, the modern Garfield is actually in this so full circle. It's based on Chuck Schultz's drawing and his suggestions to I Jim Davis. It. I um in the notes you provided me, that was a surprise to me. Um like I had I, I knew some of the facts about Jim Davis. I knew that he um grew up uh, as a child on a farm and stuff. Uh but I did not know that Charles uh, Schultz had a hand in sort of modernizing the look of Garfield, which which is so cool to me. That's it's so cool to see uh, two huge uh, comic creators and their worlds collide like that. Like that, uh, it, it makes me geek out a little bit. Yeah, I I love that idea of the sort of serendipitous moment as people are connecting and and all of that. And I love those stories of artists interacting, especially Mm. in like a positive way. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. you read these stories about some artists and it's hard to look at their work the same way again. Mm -hmm. And I like when that happens in a good way, you know, like, like I, I I was so disappointed when I read details of Picasso's life, but like, (laughs) you know, Jim Davis and, and Chuck Schultz from everything I've read and, you know, listeners, please don't email me if I'm wrong. <laughs> it seems like it seems like they're good guys. They mm. help each other out. Love that. Yeah, it's nice. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable We look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. And so from like 1976-78, Davis publishes the comic strip, which was it was called John at first. Um, the that central, I didn't know either. Yeah, the central figure was John. And, you know, Garfield was his foil. As it, I mean, that's the dynamic that, that persisted through the cartoon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after like two years, I think they kind of changed it up to, to refocus and central, center it on Garfield, the kid. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think it's kind of cool the way that like Jim Davis's personal history and his biography seems to come through. I, I always love these details where an artist is sort of giving us a window into their world. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not a hundred percent autobiographical, but like John is a cartoonist and he grew up on a farm and his yeah. birthday is the same as Jim Davis's and Garfield is Jim Davis's grandfather's middle name. And, <laughs> and you know, it's just like all these things where it's like, you can really tell he was giving it all he had. He wasn't like holding back. Like this is the project that he felt was going to be his legacy. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like this is uh, sort of the uh, culmination of all of his experience and his life experience. And uh, just, it's sort of, uh, it's the most Jim Davis that any of his comic works uh, could be, if that makes any sense. Oh, it a hundred percent makes sense to me. I mean, like I said, he's he's naming the characters after his family members. He's putting his own biography into it, and like you only do that if you are gonna be proud of this. You yeah, know? it's also sort of like that uh, that expression uh, to write what you know. Oh um, yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's very true in this case. Like, you aren't going to know any other life or any other experience as well as your own. So if you can focus on that, then you're going to get something genuine just automatically. Yeah. And I think that's what people responded to. I mean, John is this somewhat bumbling, but also lovable character. Yeah. Yeah, And Garfield is, is, he's got this gruff exterior and we all kind of know someone like that. (laughs) <laughs> but like under the surface, there's there's some warmth to it too. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he's a charming and, character. Yeah, he he's a lovable jerk. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> it really resonated with people, and I I cannot overstate like the significance of this legacy. Like I grew up watching some Garfield cartoons and stuff mm, from same. time to time, but the comic John. You know, started in 1976. By 78, it was Garfield. And it has been syndicated it first, like, in 41 newspapers in 70, mm-hmm. 78. And now it's been in, like, 2,500 newspapers, read by, like, 300 million people. Mm-hmm. It's been movies, video mm-hmm. games, the comic mm-hmm. strip, the books. There was even a Garfield-themed restaurant in Dubai. I wish I could go back in time and go to that restaurant. That sounds amazing. I wish I could go back in time and pick up all sorts of Garfield swag. I mean, my my (laughs) wife and I have been watching old reruns of Double Dare and like the first season, the first prize used to be a Garfield phone. And I'm I'm like, "That that is delightful kitsch that is... Selling for a lot on eBay. I, I do find myself Googling uh, older uh, Garfield merchandise every now and then. Like, I'm always tempted by it. <laughs> I it, really it, do. It, it's delightful. But now I do want to shift to to talking about, like, Garfield the cat and, and the evolution of the character. Because that is something that I really would love to know your insights on. Like, because, like, like I said, the original Garfield... In the John comic, 
looks very different from the Garfield mm-hmm. that all mm-hmm. of us know today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking at it now from my phone. Yeah, the initial the initial Garfield um the the first comic was like black and white, so it's just like a contour line drawing. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a cat. It's kind of sitting there on all fours. Um it's it's basically like a semicircle with a face. Yeah, he looks like a big mound. Yeah, and then in 79, he's still kind of like that, a little bit stretched mm. out. They added some color. Mm. Um, I, I can see – I always like seeing those elements of process, and maybe this is the artist in me. Like I'm always looking at stuff with that like mm. lens of how was that constructed. And so I like – that in his style, we we've got the you know the bende dots and the, like the little bits of like hatching and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I always like seeing those sort of I guess like I said evidence of process. Absolutely, I'm I'm right there with you. And and I, I like as I'm looking at that second iteration of Garfield from like the 1979, the original Garfield comic strip, which Mm. was basically the same as the first John comic strip, just more polished. Yeah. I like the way that like the, the markings on his back are, are line designs. You know Mm. what I'm saying? It's like hatching lines to make up these triangular They're not like solid shapes. They're, Yeah. yeah. I like that. It's, um, to use the pompous sort of term, it's that sprezzatura, that uh, study Ooh. carelessness. I, I always got it like as I'm, you know, trying to to sound smart. I always got to pepper in a little form. No, words it's great. Here. This is an educational you know? podcast, yeah. <laughs> and I'm being educated. It's great. But it's it's interesting to me the way he's simplified the character. Like mm. John, his nose becomes just like a line. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, whereas the, the initial one almost has, it almost has like a Sesame Street kind of meets yeah. Simpsons vibe. It's so funny. It, um, the style of it looks like that time period, like it, um, and it's hard to pinpoint what it, exactly it is, but it does have that same quality that you just said, uh, that, uh, Sesame Street and I, I'm sure I think lots of stuff. I think it's because of the roundedness of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the hairstyle is a little bit, it's a little bit frazzled. His clothes seem to be a little bit ill-fitting, you know? Yeah, and it, the, the lines are, in general, in general are just like a little bit wobblier. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in 79, it just, it feels tighter in terms of the mm-hmm. drawing. Um, I always think of like in, in a lot of modern art, there is just that idea of simplicity reads as more elegant. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this feels a little bit more confident to me too, mm. in terms of the mark making, like it takes confidence to make John's nose just a line Yeah, to reduce yeah, it like sure. that, you know? Um, and I, I feel like it was a little bit bolder, but the next iteration, you know, looking at Garfield as we see him today, he he is a biped. He is standing up on two two feet. You know, he's almost human-like in his posture, mm-hmm. which I find kind of interesting. I love I love the modern Garfield design. I think it's so cute. Yeah, and I, I think you know when we talk about cuteness, 
I forget where I heard it. it I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna assume I probably listened to like SYSK, you know, um, and they were talking about like they probably did an episode on the science behind cuteness. But as I recall, it's like larger eyes make it cuter. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at Garfield today, most of his eyes, <laughs> or most of his face are his eyes. Yeah, that's true. 78, it's Grumpy Cat, and the eyes take up roughly 10% of his face. Mm-hmm. And now here in 2021, the eyes are easily 60% of the head. Yeah. And the feet are also very large. You know, like the ratio of the head to the body, 78, the head was was much closer to the proportions of an actual cat. Mm-hmm. Whereas now the head is, is about equal to the size of the body. Mm. You know, and it, it's almost like the proportions of a human baby where yeah. that, that oversized head, um, you know, relative to the size of the body and everything like that. I think it draws you in because when you see those features, it makes it makes them seem a little bit more helpless. Like, you know, if if a cat had those giant feet, (laughs) they would not be able to get around. They'd be tripping (laughs) over them constantly. (laughs) They'd be tripping over their feet and falling over from the weight of the head. Uh (laughs) But as a cute image. Mm-hmm. It totally works. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you made me think about um, how different proportions of characters can uh, make them cuter. Um, and it made me think of how in um, anime style art, uh, that's very true uh, to have larger eyes. Um, and it's even truer for uh, chibi art, which is uh, sort of like, cuter um a a more a cuter stylization of anime art where uh characters are even more exaggerated they have smaller bodies bigger heads bigger eyes um and i think that's just that magic formula that makes something very cute yeah i mean if you want something to be cute construct it like a lollipop stick body (laughs) giant head yeah. <laughs> and and always rounded, you know? Yes, roundness is important. But I'm curious, you know, as somebody who who's developed a comic, I mean, the Oni Girl comics, uh, you know, I, I keep seeing these updates, like your subscriber count just keeps going up. Thousands of people are enjoying your comic. Mm. As you develop a character, how much are you doing this sort of intuitively? And how much are you thinking about... Like, okay, instead of coloring it as solid lines here, I'm going to dash off a few lines for the markings on his back. I'm going to do this Mm. sort of wedged hatching like the it almost seems like it's referencing something like a a woodcut print in his ears. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, I I guess it is more intuitive in those instances. Uh where you're referring to uh, the detail of uh, certain drawings of characters. Yeah. Um, But uh, as for the design of a character, that's a a different story. 
So I would I would love to hear some elaboration on like the steps you go through in designing a character. Oh sure. For a character, I have to have a basic idea of who they are, um, and I might not have a complete idea of what this character uh, is supposed to be like, or um, what their interests are, or what their goals are. I might not have any of that information readily available in my head. But if I just have a general idea, then I can start sketching from there. And as I think more about what I want this character to be, then I'll refine uh, their design. So um, let's see. I'm trying to think of an example of one. Um, I, but I do. Gen- oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I, I was just going to say, so like, you know, as I think about those things of like what the character is going to do and what they're going to be and what like what their motivations are and stuff like that, like the first thought that I have is, you know, if you want it to be soft and lovable, you're, you're going to make mm-hmm. it sort of more rounded features mm-hmm. and organic mm-hmm. shapes versus like, is it going to be more jagged and pointed? Like, mm-hmm. is, is that the kind of process you go through as you're absolutely, thinking? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, as you were saying that I actually thought of a specific example for, uh, two of my characters, um, in my comic, there's uh, a pair of siblings and, uh, they're slimes. Uh, they're sort of anthropomorphic slimes, but they're slimes nonetheless. And their names are Phoebe and Jay. And uh, uh, as I was initially designing them, they both had sort of soft, rounded features um, because they're slime siblings and one is made of peanut butter and the other one's made of jelly. And uh, you can guess which one is Phoebe and which one is Jay. But... Uh, Originally, they were both very rounded, and um, they're they're sort of twins, um, so their faces are very similar. But I didn't have enough to to distinguish them from each other. Jelly and peanut butter are both soft textures, um, so they both had hairstyles that sort of like went down, like gravity was pulling their hairstyles down. What I ended up doing to differentiate them was making uh, Jay's hair sort of rounded and uh, gloopy. Just it's made of lots of circles. Whereas for Phoebe, I made their hair sort of sweep upward like you see with a scoop of peanut butter, how there's peaks to it sometimes. As a character has more of a harder edge. So it's very fitting with each of their personalities for Phoebe to have an edgier look. I really like that um, that notion of the jelly, anthropomorphic jelly, you know, anthropomorphic giving human characteristics to something that's not human. Um, mm. The anthropomorphized jelly has the rounded hair, and I, I'm picturing that as like almost a connection to grapes, and you know the way mm. that a bunch would go. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the hair on the peanut butter figure is swept up the way that that peanut butter often is, and mm. so I have that literal connection to the material. But then you're saying we also see it has like a metaphorical meaning in terms of the way the character conducts themselves. Yeah. And, um, 
I, I think that's something that a lot of people who design characters take into consideration when they're designing their characters. Just when you look at a character, you sort of already get a sense of what kind of character they are without having to read about them. Absolutely. And I, I think that's the kind of discussion that, you know, I imagine Schultz and Davis having some version of that kind of mm. discussion about their characters, thinking about like, okay, the the cat's on all fours. It's it's like a house cat. House cats don't talk. They're not doing stuff. <laughs> you want it more anthropomorphic. You want it more yeah. human-like. So give it big human feet. Have it stand up like a person. Mm. And then we get this. That makes Garfield a little bit more expressive. And now as a as a person, like when I'm looking at the 1978 version, I'm looking at Garfield and thinking like that cat's going to pounce on me or <laughs> it's going to present a rat. You know, there's going to be some yes. sort of unpleasant interaction at some point. Whereas when I look at the current Garfield, he's got a little bit of like this sly smile, a little bit of mm-hmm. like almost smugness to him, mm-hmm. but also like it's it's so rounded and soft. Mm-hmm. Um, even like the even the markings on his back, which generally form a triangular silhouette, it's not pointed. Mm-hmm. All of the all of the lines that make it up are kind of rounded at the edges and and stuff like that. There's a softness to it mm-hmm. in the way that each thing is constructed, and I think that is part of what makes it work so well as a figure. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So now, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add um, another thing uh, that you made me realize uh, as we were discussing um, the original Garfield versus the modern Garfield is that perhaps the uh, original Garfield is not as successful because it has that uh, uncanny valley factor to it. It's it's absolutely recognizable as a cat, but there's just a little bit that's off about it. Like yeah. he has a small head compared to what in real life would be like an obese body for a cat. Um, the lines were wobblier. He just is, he's not as appealing as a cat. And maybe it's, uh, it's because he's too close to realism there, but it, it does not quite get far enough away from it. Um, so it's it's one of those things you have to balance too when you're creating a character. Like if you are trying to do something with a hint of realism. Yeah, I think that is such a great point. And, you know, the uncanny valley is this concept that I, I don't use that term with my students, but I, I tell them all the time. Mm the worst thing is a near miss. You either want it Mm hyper-realistic or clearly stylized because when something's just the slightest bit off, it's unsettling. You know, it, 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 you know, it becomes creepy basically, you know? Um, And I, I think that is a really good point. There is a little bit of an uncanny Valley vibe to that initial Garfield. I'm glad that you see that too. Yeah, absolutely. Because because as I do look at at the initial version, it does remind me so much of my my cat. And like, 
you know, the the worst jokes that people make about cats. You know, what was it like? There was an onion headline, probably that like cat thinks of nothing but murder all day. You know, like <laughs> right. we always think we always get this sense that like and I, I'm someone who genuinely like I've had two cats, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm an animal lover. But like the cats generally always seem to have their own agenda. And mm-hmm. so when you have something that looks too much like a real cat and then you give it the intelligence of a person and it's sassy and condescending and like mm. it's too much you need it <laughs> to be a little bit of a lighter jab yeah and i think absolutely. that's what we got today so and i'm wrapping it up i want just a three-point rating scale and where should this hang the loo is this something to look at the lab, the lab. is this something to learn from or the loop. British for the bathroom. Yeah. There's a the loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Well, personally, I think it's worth keeping around. Garfield has brought uh, generations and generations uh, a lot of joy. And he continues to do so. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I 100% agree. I'm a big fan of you know, levity and anything that brings people joy, I think that should be kept around. Um, to me, it's it's one that that I I I put in the loo just because it's a fleeting thing, and I you know I enjoy it for the moment, but don't necessarily mm. preserve it. Um, mm. You know, it's that ephemeral experience of watching Garfield laughing at the comic. I think there's a lot to it, and I I mean no disrespect with that. Oh, of course, but that's just kind of how I view it. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time and I really appreciate your sharing your insights as not only a, a lover of the arts, but a creator of the arts as well. Um, and thanks for giving us a little bit of a a peek into that process of how you develop your characters in the Oni Girl comics. Yeah, absolutely. It was a sincere pleasure, Kyle. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.